Diana Penuncial, Associate Editor of American Libraries, the magazine of the American Library Association, and you're listening to Call Number with American Libraries. This year, the Newbery Medal is celebrating 100 years of recognizing distinguished children's literature. Named after John Newbery, who was credited with publishing the first children's book in 1744, the award is given annually by the Association for Library Service to Children, a division of ALA. So, what is it like to win the medal, to get that special phone call and have your book be recognized as the best of the year? On this episode, I spoke with past Newbery Medal winners Jerry Kraft, Cynthia Kadohata, Tay Keller, and Lois Lowry. We walked down memory lane and chatted about what they remember about the day they learned they had won, what they hope kids have taken away from their books, and what projects they're working on these days. But first, here's a word from our sponsor. As a member of the American Library Association, you're committed to providing the best reading for the largest number at the least cost. Geico thinks that last part should apply to you, too. That's why, when you go to geico.com slash disc slash ALA, call 1-800-368-2734, or contact your local Geico agent for a fast, no-obligation quote, you could save even more with a special discount when you mention you're a member of the ALA. And be sure to ask how Geico could help you with homeowners and renters insurance, plus coverage for your motorcycle, boat, RV, and more. With Geico, it's easy to bundle your policies to make it easy for you and to help you save even more money. So don't wait. Go to geico.com slash D-I-S-C slash A-L-A, call 1-800-368-2734, or contact your local Geico agent for a fast, no-obligation quote now. Jerry Craft won the 2020 Newbery Medal for New Kid, the first ever graphic novel to win the award. We talked about the day he received the call from the selection committee and how he hopes more people recognize graphic novels as a form of literature. I'm wondering, do you remember where you were when you learned that you won the Newbery Medal and how did you react? Um, I was in bed (laughs) because... I was already working on the follow-up book, which is Class Act, and I normally work till about two, about two o'clock in the morning most nights. And I knew I normally shut my phone off. Uh, supposedly the the calls came anywhere from like three o'clock to six o'clock. Like I always heard stories that they, you know, people sound asleep, and the phone rings, and you know, and they give them the great news. I woke up on my own at probably probably about 5.30 a.m. It, it was nice that I had a lot of mock Newberry awards, you know, like a lot of schools across the country do mock Newberries. And I would always say, hey, you know, new kids won our mock Newberry. But those were kids who were voting for it. I didn't know if I had the same kind of uh that same kind of power with the adults and librarians who would be reading it. I was like, hey, if kids are voting on it, I'm good. <laughs> Further, to complicate things, you know, no um, graphic novel had ever won before. 
And only four African-American authors had ever won in, you know, almost 100 years. Kwame Alexander, Mildred Taylor, Virginia Hamilton, and Christopher Paul Curtis. So the betting odds really were not good. Um, so at about mm, 6, 15, I was like, well, you know, it was nice. The call is not coming, so mm-hmm. let me roll back over and go to sleep. But, you know, it, it was a nice ride. About 6.42, the phone rang, and I was like, hmm, okay. And I was, you know, and I always tell this joke, but I was like, please don't let it be, a, uh, you know, hi, we'd like to, you know, lower your insurance rates yeah. or, you know, some kind of spam call. Mm-hmm. I was like, please don't let it be that. And I picked up, and it was like, hi, is this Jerry Kraft? Like, yes. It's like a very excited person on the phone and says, you know, we'd like to inform you that your book, New Kid, has been chosen for the 2020 John Newberry Medal. And everyone screamed to the background, wow! <laughs> and I was just, like, stunned. Like, you know, when when they always talk about your life flashing before your eyes, but my mine was my, my life as a non-reader flashing before my eyes, you know? Mm-hmm. Like this kid that much rather play video games than uh, reading a book, it was pretty amazing. Not to mention that uh, about half hour after that, I got a call telling me that I had also won the Credit Scott King Author Award. So that was needless to say quite the morning. You talked a lot about how you hope your win will legitimize storytelling uh, through graphic novels. So I'm wondering mm-hmm. what what are the skeptics of the format of graphic novels, not really seeing about it, that you want to be able to show them that you could do? You know, it's not like if I'm writing a prose book, you know, that I say, so for my prose book, I'm going to do character outlines, and I'm going to do plot points, and I'm going to do rising action, and, you know, like, character arts and story arts, and then I go to do a graphic novel and go, yeah, I'm not going to do any of that stuff for this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I'm just going to like, just, uh, I'm just going to go willy-nilly on it, you know. Obviously, anything that I put into a prose book, I'm going to put into a graphic novel. You know, so I'm, I'm still using all of the same literary devices. Oh, you know, Jordan walks into his class and sits down mm-hmm. in his chair. If I'm doing a graphic novel, what does the classroom look like? I have to draw the classroom. So I have to research the classroom, right, to make it look like an actual classroom. Now, the other thing where I think it kind of challenges kids more to a large degree is that a lot of kids are visual learners, which is why I love graphic novels, because... Mm -hmm. Again, when I used to see books that just is like words and words and words and words, especially with small type, and from a distance, it just looked gray, and there was nothing to break it up, like my mind just shut down. Like, well, there's not going to be anything interesting here. So when I, you know, break it up, so now it's a perfect marriage Mm -hmm. between the words and the visual. So, for example... When I had Jordan going into the cafeteria, the school cafeteria the first day, I didn't have to have him saying, 
oh, I feel so lonely and isolated and I feel small and unseen. I literally just drew him like four inches tall. I think that a lot of adults that don't like these can't read them, you know, because they are saying, I don't know which box to look at, you know, I don't know which balloon to read first. And again, sometimes human nature, you shut down. I had one teacher in particular come to me and was like, so this kid came to me and was like, Miss Johnson, you're going to read this book um, over the weekend so you and I can talk about it. And, and he gave her a copy of New Kid. And she's like, wait a minute. This kid hasn't read an entire book since I've known him. And he's coming into class and giving me a reading assignment for the weekend so that he and I can discuss it. And she was floored by it. You know, so now imagine what this kid feels. He thought he wasn't a reader. Now he and his teacher can have an intellectual conversation on a Newbery Award-winning book that he may then have to help her to navigate. You know, that does wonders for self-esteem. As a member of the American Library Association, you're committed to providing the best reading for the largest number at the least cost. GEICO thinks that last part should apply to you, too. That's why when you go to geico.com slash disc slash ALA, call 1-800-368-2734 or contact your local GEICO agent for a fast, no-obligation quote, you could save even more with a special discount when you mention you're a member of the ALA. And be sure to ask how GEICO could help you with homeowners and renters insurance, plus coverage for your motorcycle, boat, RV, and more. With GEICO, it's easy to bundle your policies to make it easy for you and to help you even save even more money. So don't wait. Go to geico.com slash D-I-S-C slash A-L-A, call 1-800-368-2734, or contact your local GEICO agent for a fast, no-obligation quote now. Cynthia Katohata received the Newbery Medal for Kira Kira in 2005. I caught up with her about what she remembers about winning, her early days of writing, and how much she loves incorporating animals, specifically dogs, in her books. What was your reaction when you heard that you won the medal? Uh, Well, I was in bed with my baby, (laughs) actually, and my dog. The phone rang, and my boyfriend, who was already awake, answered it. And he came and woke me up, and he—I think he said something. And I—I I was like, "Really? It's—it's it's 4:30 in the morning." And then he says, "I think you're going to want to take this call," and so I did. You're—you're <laughs> you're probably a couple of hours behind too, right? Living in—were you in California at the time, or? Yes. So I think they were in Boston, as I recall. For them, it was a fairly normal hour, and for me, it wasn't, but it was really exciting, and I, I screamed a lot. They they recorded part of it, and I said I thought I remembered screaming more, and then one of them told me, yeah, you did. You said that's only part of it. So I think some people say they cry, but I didn't cry. I, it was more of a, a screaming fit. So, What did it mean to you um, to win a Newberry for Kira Kira? Uh, I think it was kind of amazing because when I was first writing, 
Everybody told me, I've, I've, I've said this many times, but everybody was telling me nobody wants to read about Asian people. You know, I, you kind of just have to have this, it's not even a belief. I didn't believe that I would get published. You just have to have this doggedness and not worry about what anybody is saying. And I actually, I worked at, at Sears, uh, at one point during college as a sales clerk. And I was telling two of the ladies there that I wanted to be a writer and they literally were like, ha 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 laughing out loud. And <laughs> they're like, what are you going to write about working at Sears? And I said, well, maybe, maybe. <laughs> Did it ever discourage you at all or make, make you second guess, you know, what you were writing, like the, the subjects that you were writing about? I don't know if it's, if it made me second guess what I was writing about because I felt like I could only write what I was writing about, but uh, what I knew sort of, but it did make me second guess at times just whether this was ever going to work out and yeah. whether I should really do it. And I had actually told a friend of mine um, at some point, well, I, I had been selling, sending stories every month to the New Yorker for several years and I kept getting turned down. Yeah, some of the stories were bad, but I think some of them were good. And so uh, I, I, finally I said to somebody, I don't think I'm ever going to publish. I wonder if I should just move on because it had been several years. And then he told me, you're going to publish soon. Just wait. And in fact, three weeks later, an editor from the New Yorker called me and said, we're going to take your story. So, Your other novel, Weed Flower, tells the story of being in the post-internment camp during World War II, something that your own family experienced. Did you feel like writing it was a way to honor your family history? And how important was it for you to get that out? I, th I think um, my dad was the one in Poston, and so, and my mom's family was in uh, Manzanar. She herself wasn't; mm -hmm. she was in Hawaii. But I felt like it was something I was doing for my dad. Like I, when you get older, you appreciate, you know, how hard your parents worked. I mean, my dad worked so hard. I, I just feel like he he got out of camp. He had nothing, mm -hmm. and he built a life for us. And and I never really appreciated it. You know, I was probably pretty mouthy when I was young. And so it was good to grow up and kind of dedicate a book to him and feel like I was telling a story that meant something to him. Right. And we're all a little bit mouthy when we're young. <laughs> <laughs> did, did he get any, like, uh, did he work with you at all in the writing process for Weed Flower? Or, you know, what was your process like uh, digging into your family history for it? I, I interviewed a, a lot of people for that, and um, my dad was always saying, you can ask me anything, and then he, when you actually ask him, he says, oh, I don't remember, but there were there were other, there, like, I interviewed several former flower farmers, because the families are, you know, they're flower farmers, and we flower, somebody set me up with a bunch of flower farmers, and that was amazing, and, and there's a, during that interview, the thing that really made me feel like, oh, I have to finish this book and do a good job was this one guy who, you know, he was in his 80s and he was going on and on about how the camps were not that bad and, you know, we got fed and everything. And then all of a sudden, as he's telling me that they're not that bad, he starts sobbing. It just made me feel like this was, it was really important to me to, you know, to do this book. Sometimes, you know, during writing a book, you sort of kind of, start to start losing confidence in the book maybe and stuff stuff like that kind of reinvigorates me.
I looked through your website and I, I love that your uh, dog Wilson, he has his own page on your website. And so I, I dug a little more and I saw that you rescue dogs, like specifically Dobermans, I think. And so I'm wondering, you know, how does the compassion behind caring for, you know, dogs and animals in general and being in companionship with them work its way into your book? So, yeah, I have two books, actually. I think uh, the thing about luck on the back cover, it has a picture of a Doberman and the picture of a Doberman on the front. Uh, so I and I'm writing um, my, the thing I'm writing on now also has a dog in it. So I think I'm just going to I feel like for the rest of my life, I'm just going to throw dogs in every book because um, <laughs> they're just such a big part of my life. And uh, I feel so connected to them. So I kind of just like I just really enjoy writing about them. Tay Keller won the 2021 Newberry Medal for When You Trap a Tiger. We talked about how she almost missed the call from the selection committee, what it was like growing up in Hawaii, and themes from her new book, Jennifer Chan is Not Alone. Do you remember where you were when you learned that you won the Newberry Medal, and how did you react? Yes, um, I don't think that I could forget that moment. Um, <laughs> So I, it was actually on Zoom, uh, like most things. Um, and I had heard that my publisher set up a Zoom. And what they told me was that it would be with the Asian Pacific Committee, because I just found out that I won the Asian Pacific Award, which is so exciting. Um, and then I logged on to the Zoom call, and there were a bunch of faces. Um, and they announced this is the Newberry Committee. And I just had this moment of panic, <laughs> like, oh my God, it's the wrong link. Um, and then I, I, it was, I was so nervous. And it took me until they all held up my book with the sticker on it to realize that this was actually happening. Um, and I'm not really sure what I said <laughs> because I was just totally uh, in full shock. I think I was not articulate at all, just. Like, thank you, thank you. Oh my gosh, is this real? Um, I asked them at one point, I think, to repeat themselves <laughs> since Aww. when I first logged on, I was just so panicked about it being the wrong call that I like wasn't really processing that they were talking, meant to be talking to me. Um, and then, uh, when I hung up on the call, I just burst into tears. Um, I read that you grew up in Honolulu. <laughs> um, I was wondering if, if there's anything about, you know, your childhood experience growing up in Hawaii that resonates with you as, as a storyteller now. Um, yeah, I mean, I think a lot about um, identity when I think about how I grew up in Hawaii. Yeah, so there is such a big Asian population and a big biracial population. And so I always grew up feeling like part of a bigger community. And I never felt like I had to justify being biracial or explain it, or um, I never felt like an outsider because of it. And when I went to the mainland, I realized that's not the case everywhere. And for the first time, I really had to think about what it meant to be biracial. And I, I was explaining it to a lot of people. Um, there were some people who didn't understand it and kind of pushed back and really wanted me to be one thing, you know, wanted me to choose 
white or Asian. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of uh, a, around that time, I had published my first book, which has a biracial main character. And I was visiting schools and I was talking to students. And so often there were students who would come up to me and say, you know, Natalie, the main character, is like me. Um, so I was talking to these biracial kids in different schools who weren't growing up with that community. And that made me feel even more so like I wanted to keep writing from that point of view and uh, kind of sharing that perspective and, and showing kids who aren't lucky enough to grow up surrounded by people who look like them that mm-hmm. they're not alone and there is a, a bigger community out there. And that also kind of ties um, into my next question, which is about Jennifer Chan is not alone, which is obviously um, your new book. And it kind of looks into um, this possibility of, of aliens being in the book and kind of being a metaphor for Jennifer Chan and maybe her feelings of isolation. I'm wondering what made you want to include that otherworldly element of, of aliens tie it in with that feeling of being alone? Part of it, just the kind of more surface level answer is that I was looking for a way to balance the emotional tone of the book. So mm-hmm. the book is a lot about bullying and these big questions about what does it mean to be a good person and how do we correct our mistakes and move forward? And that was very heavy. And so I was looking for something to kind of balance it out. And I thought that this question of aliens was really fun. And to have these kids searching for aliens and having that drive the plot a little bit and and lighten it up. Um, So that was kind of these, um, that was a piece of it. And then I was also thinking about the thematic element of both, you know, are we alone in the universe? The the thing of asking really big questions and looking internally and then also (laughs) asking those questions out into the universe um, and what else is out there and also this question of uncertainty so I I think I wanted to bring in this feeling that I I think is so common for so many of us now and especially for kids growing up right now not knowing what the future looks like and, and just sitting with so much uncertainty about you know all of these big issues in the world I mean these kids are coming of age in a time of pandemic and right. also, I mean, the climate crisis and so many things that they don't know what the future is going to look like. I wanted to think about these things of, you know, how how might a kid respond to questions like that? And for Jennifer Chan, she's really thinking, okay, maybe there's something out there. Like there's some answer mm-hmm. that we'll discover that will save us and really trying to balance what it means to search for answers in a time like now that is uncertain. As a member of the American Library Association, you're committed to providing the best reading for the largest number at the least cost. Geico thinks that last part should apply to you too. That's why when you go to geico.com slash D-I-S-C slash A-L-A, call 1-800-368-2734 or contact your local Geico agent for a fast, no obligation quote, you could save even more with a special discount when you mention you're a member of the A-L-A. And be sure to ask how GEICO could help you with homeowners and renters insurance, plus coverage for your motorcycle, boat, RV, and more. With GEICO, it's easy to bundle your policies to make it easy for you and help you save even more money. So don't wait. 
Go to geico.com slash D-I-S-C slash A-L-A. Call 1-800-368-2734 or contact your local Geico agent for a fast, no obligation quote now. Thanks again to Geico for sponsoring our episode. Lois Lowry is one of six authors to win the Newbery Medal twice, for Number the Stars in 1990 and The Giver in 1994. She and I chatted about where she was when she got the call both times, what it feels like to see her books challenged, and how she taps into different points of view when she writes. What do you remember about winning the Newbery Medal and how did you react? And we can either talk about the first time you won it or, or the second time, whichever one. Okay, well, <laughs> well, it was very different both times. The first time was uh, 1990. Uh, it was January. I lived in Boston. I was sitting at my desk uh, early in the morning and had no idea that the committee was meeting. Nowadays, of course, everybody knows what day it's meeting and who's on the committee. I didn't have a clue. Uh, nor had I been told or alerted to the fact that my book was under consideration. So that came as a complete and total surprise. Of course, it was a wonderful surprise. Uh, it was followed uh, immediately by a set of odd and in retrospect funny little disasters because they asked me during that phone call if I was willing to fly to New York that day in order to uh, be on the Today Show the next morning. Uh, I looked out the window on a January day and it was snowing and I, I said, oh sure, I'll do that. And so I was instructed to go to the airport and there would be a ticket waiting. And and so I did that by afternoon. Uh, to head to New York, and uh, by then it was even difficult to get to the airport because of the snow. But eventually, I got on a plane and took off, and uh, it couldn't land in New York. So it circled and circled New York, and and eventually, oddly, it landed in an abandoned uh, Air Force base in upstate New York, and we stayed there for hours because uh, they had to find snowplows to plow the runway at this abandoned place. By by just four years later, I was, uh, of course, in, uh, much more aware of, of the medal, of when the committee was meeting, all of that. But that year, my book, The Giver, apparently had been widely talked about as uh, a top contender for that award. And I realized I did not want to be sitting at my desk hoping the phone would ring. Uh, if it's just, at any rate, at the same time, my husband was retiring from his uh, profession and we had decided to take a trip. And so we planned it for the very time when the Newbury would be announced so mm -hmm. that I would not be sitting at my desk. <laughs> and instead, uh, I was on a ship in Antarctica and they couldn't reach me. Eventually, uh, by radio, they reached the ship, <laughs> and uh, and I got a little pink slip of paper saying the radio operator had a message for me, and it said the giver has been awarded the 1994, I guess it was, Newbery Medal. And uh, so I had that pink slip of paper in my pocket at dinner that night. This is a small ship. Uh, I've forgotten how many passengers, but I was sitting next to a stranger. And I pulled out this 
little piece of paper and said, you know, this won't mean anything to you, but this is very exciting news that I just got from the radio room. And uh, she looked at it and she said, I'm the former president of the American Library Association. Exactly what it means. You know, The Giver is considered to be one of the most challenged books, even after all these years. What has it felt like to see that that book has been continuously challenged? Very disheartening to uh, Mm -hmm. be made aware of of the, uh, particularly right now, uh, the challenges and and the attempts at book banning. I'm speaking to you from my winter home in Florida. And um, Florida has just succeeded in uh, their legislature in in passing a bill that is going to affect books like The Giver and and many others. But it's so disheartening to see this not only continue, uh, but to get worse and worse. I, I'm hoping that it's a, uh, what would the word be, a, a pendulum that has swung <laughs> way too far in the wrong direction and and will find its way back eventually. You've written a lot about different worlds and, and time periods, uh, you know, able to tap into so many diverse themes and characters that are in your books. So I'm wondering how you tap into these stories seamlessly. Interesting that you mentioned that because I have a book that's coming out next fall, not published yet, but uh, it's set in the first century, 2,000 years ago. And so uh, I've done the same thing. I've main characters, adolescents, but wherever they are and whatever century it is or decade, uh, I go back into my own self at that age into the kinds of things that I cared about, worried about, wondered about, and I just, you know, I have to do uh, research to get the time period right and the setting, uh, but the the uh, inside, the interior of an adolescent, I don't think has probably changed over 2,000 years. Uh, what's the role that libraries have played in your life? When I was a little girl, uh, I was taken to Sunday school at the Presbyterian Church in a small uh, Pennsylvania town every Sunday. But secretly, my real church and my real religion was the other days of the week when I went by myself from the age of six, probably, to the public library, which was two blocks from my grandfather's house where I lived. My father was overseas during the war, Mm -hmm. and we lived my grandparents. And uh, that became, uh, it's kind of funny because I remembered it as a long set of marble steps. And I went back to that town as an adult. I had left there at age 11. And uh, I went back and I saw it was 12 cement steps. Uh, But to me, as a little girl, that was an entrance to, to a cathedral. To learn more about the Newbery Medal, check out our stories in the June issue of American Libraries. Next episode, we'll be delving into international issues. We'll be talking to librarians about how their work has changed since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. You won't want to miss these conversations.